Welcome to the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series, where your host, Andy Jacob, interviews leading entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs about their incredible companies and discusses their unique entrepreneurial journeys. If you're the CEO or founder of an exciting and exceptional company, the editorial team of Dotcom Magazine welcomes you to pitch your business story to appear on this exciting interview series by reaching out to Mr. Jacob at Dotcom Magazine at dotcommagazine.com. And without further ado, here is another amazing entrepreneurial story on the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. Good afternoon, everyone. Andy Jacob here with the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. We have a wonderful show today. We've been able to book Miss Kathleen Kelly Rebar. And Kathleen is the managing partner at Rebar Kelly Law Firm. They've got offices in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. Recently, she was named one of the top 10 women entrepreneurs to watch. She heads the firm's liability practice, and she's been advising and counseling clients for a number of years in very complex litigation matters, actually over two decades. So we're super excited to have Kathleen on the show today. Kathleen, Kathleen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I feel like you need to introduce me in like every setting I go into after that. It's fantastic. Would, thank you. I would love it. I would love it. Well, listen, your your reputation precedes you. You do amazing work at the Rebar Kelly Law Firm. You've been at it for a long time. Uh, you started as an assistant district attorney in Delaware, and you worked your way up through the ranks. And here you are, the managing partner of the law firm. Let's pull the lens back just a little bit, Kathleen, and tell us what you guys specialize in at Rebar Kelly? Sure. Um, just a point of clarification. It was Delaware County in Pennsylvania, not Delaware, the state. I just like to give some credit and props to my old, uh, my old office because it was a fantastic place to work when I was an assistant district attorney down in Delaware County. Um, but thank you. So at, at Rebar Kelly, our, our focus is a little bit different than where my career route started I started out as a prosecutor, and uh, I actually met my husband in court when I was an assistant district attorney. He's a state trooper. Seems like yesterday, but in fact, it's 25 years ago now. Uh, our firm here at Rebar Kelly, we, we mostly focus um, with respect to issues that arise under insurance policies. So businesses and individuals, they secure insurance policies, and we hope you know we never need those policies. But when those policies stepped up to protect the interest of those individuals, when something unexpected happens, like a lawsuit, and uh, the insurance carrier would then appoint an attorney to defend those claims, and that's where we would step in. So whether it's an adverse incident involving a medical procedure or a lawyer who was unhappy you know, with respect to their outcome or a design error in a construction project of a new building, or say a guest was injured in a hotel or a store, if the insurance policy provides coverage, the insurance carrier will sign an attorney, and that's where we would step in to defend those claims. See, that makes all the sense in the world. And, and obviously, there's a lot of large insurance companies that need this expertise and background and experience. And, and when you're um, speaking to insurance companies, Kathleen, I would imagine that you've heard of every type of case under the moon. 
if you will. And is there a specialty that you have in a certain sort of um, matters that the insurance companies really reach out to rebar Kelly above and beyond all the other law firms at this point? Well, sure. Thanks for that. Um, I think a lot of our insurance carrier clients would say that they come to us for their bet the house cases, those really large cases that are messy and complicated, that we would be their go-to firm for those. And that's because of the strategic thinking that we employ in our processes. But we do have, and it'd be, you know, I'd be remiss to not focus on, on the total of our practice. So we do have an insurance coverage practice, and that's headed by my uh, partner, Kim Parsons, in our New Jersey office where we would evaluate whether or not there is even coverage that exists under a policy and provide the insurance carrier with guidance throughout the, the process regarding whether or not coverage exists. But then we do a lot of professional liability. So if you have a license, you're a licensed professional and you get sued, that's our bread and butter. That's where we come in and we defend those licensed professionals to determine whether or not they acted within the standard of care. Just because there's an adverse outcome doesn't mean that somebody violated their standard of care with regards to their clients. And we take our professional responsibility seriously, and we know that our clients take their professional responsibility seriously. So we use our expertise to defend those professionals. But we also have a, a niche a practice with respect to um, um, hotels and, and restaurants and retail industry, premise liability cases, you know, if you're overserved in a, in a an establishment that sells alcohol, or if you've slipped and fallen on a surface in, say, the mall or, you know, in a hotel, or there's been some other injury, we would also defend those types of claims. That's very, that's very interesting, Kathleen. So you mentioned about this sort of strategic team and this strategic thought process that, that your company, or your law firm, Rebar Kelly, brings to the, to the forefront. I want to talk about that a little bit, because that sounds very interesting, where when someone comes in or an insurance company comes in or a sole practitioner comes in and, and they hire your firm, it sounds like you have wonderful communication within all the people that work at your law firm. So you can sort of um, ask them different questions and get responses from them as well. So it sounds like you get a complete strategic team when people reach out to Rebar Kelly. Absolutely. I mean, we handle such a wide variety of matters with all wide ranging exposures. And what I mean by exposure is the damages, you know, is the case worth $1,000 or $10 million. So we have a, a very wide breadth of cases that we handle. So when the cases come in, we definitely employ a team based approach and a two part analysis you know, to determine one, did we do anything wrong here? But that's really not the end of the inquiry because if there's even the smallest chance that we did something wrong and the damages are very high, then there's exposure. So it's both evaluating the liability, whether or not we are in the wrong, we violated the standard of care, you know, we didn't clean up that spill, whatever it is. But then also what are the damages that this plaintiff has sustained? Is it a traumatic brain injury and they're now living in a facility? Is it uh, a minor ankle sprain? What are we looking at? Because that really will set the tone of where the case is going. And so from the very beginning, looking at those two pieces, we put together a strategic plan, looking at the facts of the case as we know them, to, to carry throughout the course of the case, which allows our team to provide a very efficient and focused approach to the litigation, which often results in must, much better results and outcomes for our clients. It's important to keep in mind that not every case, and actually only less than 2% of cases, go to trial. And so the strategic approach to those cases makes a big difference with regards to your strategy of resolution. Is the resolution a victory at trial? 
since such a small percentage of cases end up at trial, generally that's not the client's goal. The client goal is to come to a resolution that they can live with so that they can move on and get back to doing business, make the plaintiff whole again. What is the first juncture we can do that? And so that's how we, we go about approaching the cases as they come in. We evaluate them, we review them, we roundtable them, and then we set the strategy to move forward so that we can make sure that our client's interests are protected and that we're reaching their goals. Well, that's amazing. And that's how you've been able to build this law firm uh, the way that you've been able to do it. And we're going to talk about that momentarily about entrepreneurship and what it takes to actually build something as strong and powerful as what you and your team and your your manage, uh, your partners have been able to build. But, I, you know, I, I'm listening to you. And recently, Kathleen, I've been looking for a, for a um, senior adult community for my mother-in-law. And we're, okay. we're, we're going through that process and we're on the Zoom and we're, we're, we're trying to figure out the best place for her to land. And in the back of my mind, of course, my wife and I are always saying to ourselves, you know, you want to find the best level of care in those long-term care facilities. And, and it was sort of, I've been thinking about what happens at these long-term care facilities in terms of sort of the legality of what's going on and the people that they hire and perhaps, you know, somebody does something inappropriate or not quite right at the long-term care facility that maybe harms one of the senior adult um, community members. Um, so I know this is sort of coming out of the middle of nowhere, but I was curious, is that is that area of, or that practice area, like a big area for a lot of attorneys at this point in time and insurance companies? Uh, great question. So that is one of our practice areas. That's one of the areas upon which we focus in all states in which we practice. Long-term care industry um, has been heavily regulated. In some states, there's caps. And so the amount of litigation that's arisen in the long-term care industry is declined. That's not the case with the Northeast. There are no such caps. During COVID, however, uh, there's been you know, several states, if not all of the states in which we practice that have imposed um, immunity to those facilities for issues involving COVID. So under the recent construct, we're not seeing an uptick in litigation as a result of nursing home deaths resulting from COVID. While there is some litigation, there are a lot of protections. Um, during the pandemic, we have not seen an uptick with respect to long-term care litigation at all. If we go pre-pandemic, there is a large body of litigation surrounding long-term care from you know, things involving pressure sores to uh, not, not providing the proper fall protections for individuals, not performing the right types of assessments, not transporting people early enough to hospital settings, not providing the correct level of care. Those are the types of allegations that we see. You know, By and large, I've been defending the long-term care industry for a very long time. It is full of extremely dedicated people who are absolutely committed to getting the best outcomes for those residents. You know, these are difficult times for these people. They end up in these facilities generally without expectation to return home and almost always because at home they can't be provided the level of care that they require. And so this is, this is their last and final stop. And when you recognize that it is the last and final stop for these individuals, the outcome that's expected is that this individual will decline and will die in this facility. That is not a reality that we want to embrace in any way in a joyous fashion, but it is a fact. You know, these individuals are, are aging out and declining, and that's why their level of care keeps increasing. 
some families do have a difficult time understanding that that outcome is a foregone conclusion. None of us leave this earth alive, right? At some point in time, all of our time will come. It's, dis it's distinguishing between those cases where you've had a failure to thrive and a declination of the quality of your life as resulting from the natural dying and aging process versus where negligence and malpractice has come in. And so it's important that we evaluate those cases in a very strategic manner to determine, is this an emotional family who is not willing to accept the, you know, the, term, the, the terminal illness that their loved one was enduring at the time. And that maybe that the individual who is involved and who's no longer here actually gave up and did not want to fight any longer, that they had refused certain treatments because they had the right to do that. You know, so evaluating the cases on the facts that are presented and understanding them thoroughly is very important to progressing. And sometimes those families just need to understand that nothing bad did happen. And litigation is the only way that they're afforded that opportunity. And so they, um, they engage in pre-complaint or pre-litigation types of discovery where they have the ability to review in full the medical records, the facility records with an expert. And a lot of times that expert will come back and indicate there's no evidence of negligence. Um, this was just a situation that's unfortunate and was an expected outcome. And sometimes the experts say there was negligence and we have disputes and, and we will work through on our end I will say, for what it's worth, on the defense side of things, there's a lot of intellectual honesty going on. You know, when we step into the case, we evaluate the case to find the truth. If we did something wrong, all parties involved are looking to resolve that case and give that family the satisfaction that they need. If we truly don't believe something is, it happened that was improper or negligent, then those cases get defended. And you, you don't always win the cases you should, and you don't always lose the cases you should. So that's, that's why it's important that you secure the right attorneys and that the attorneys who are guiding everybody through this process on the plaintiff side, on the defense side, that they have a good understanding of the, you know, the, the case, the facts, and, and how the law applies to those things so that we can give satisfaction to everybody involved in the process. I don't know if that was a little long for you. I know you asked like sort of a direct question, but. No, that was, that's, that's amazing, Kathleen. And of course, Anybody watching the show, you know, knows that when you hire an attorney or go to a law firm, it's this type of intellect that you're looking for and this type of strategy that, that makes it worthwhile to hire the best attorney that you can. And certainly at Rebar Kelly, you're, you're getting a lot of dynamic brains over at the, at the law firm. So Kathleen, you mentioned, um, you mentioned COVID and we do have a lot of let's say uh, younger entrepreneurs or, or smaller companies that are watched the show and maybe they've got a storefront and they, maybe they have a couple or a few employees for the smaller guys watching the show. And I know it's in the back of everybody's mind, like what's going to happen to my company? God forbid somebody gets COVID or when they come into the store, or maybe one of my employees get it. Am I going to be held accountable. I mean, I, you know, I'm not looking for legal advice, but generally speaking, could you give some color on that whole aspect of what's going on in the United States today? So there was a lot to unpack with that question um, because it affects, it affects and impacts so many different areas of the law. You know, we have a robust workers' compensation law in all of the states in which I practice, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. 
And those work and workers' compensation laws are meant to compensate individual employees who um, are injured without fa- reference to fault in the workplace. So if you contract COVID in your workplace and you're unable to work, we have workers' compensation laws that are in place to protect you and, and to benefit you through you know, paying your wages and, and medical bills throughout that process. Um, where I think the real question comes in is you know, whether or not under the employment laws, which is a little bit separate, you know, individuals now want to return to the workplace, right? So let's take a step back. Um, we're coming to the point now where maybe some of the restrictions are going to lighten up. Under the current model, at least in the state of Pennsylvania, you're, spo- you're supposed to have telework for all of your employees wherever possible. And so that wherever possible language is very critical. If you're bringing your employees back and it's and they're capable of teleworking, you may be in violation of the governor's order that's in existence at the current time. So those are pretty clear. You can't do certain things under the existing restrictions. You know, restaurants have certain limitations with respect to capacity and outdoor events have certain limitations with respect to capacity. Those are sort of clear instructions. Don't violate those. If you violate those, that's where you could get in trouble because you've you know, you'll have a per se negligence, so to speak, because the guidance and orders that are in front of us tell us to do certain things. When the restrictions are lifted and you're able to bring people back to work, we are expecting a, a wealth of employment claims where claims against employers for not making accommodations under the Americans with Disability Act or, you know, Family Medical Leave Act type of things. So employers are going to have a hard time deciphering someone who doesn't want to come back to work based on a general anxiety with respect to contracting COVID and someone who may have a pre-existing condition that puts them at a higher risk and whether or not that would allow them to receive a reasonable accommodation to continue to work from home. One of the problems that we predicted, and by we, I mean the legal industry in general, not just us, that we predicted at the outset of COVID, and not to say that this should overshadow the need to impose these restrictions at all, that is not my point. We have to do what we need to do to keep our society and its citizens safe, and the restrictions that were imposed during the pandemic, I'm not challenging. You know, however, what we did is we established an ability to perform functions of the workplace that used to be performed within the brick and mortar structures of the employment place, now at home. And so we have, in essence, proven that a reasonable accommodation of work from home exists because we've been doing it for a year. And so it's going to be difficult for employers to overcome that hurdle. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, at least in the state of Pennsylvania, I don't want to bore you with a four-hour discussion and dissertation in every single state where I practice, but let's just focus on Pennsylvania. The law in Pennsylvania and New Jersey essentially presumed that working from home on its face was not a reasonable accommodation, that employers had a right to have employees in the workplace and that there were certain benefits to having your employees physically in the workspace, collaborating with each other, that employers had the right to experience and demand. So now that the COVID-19 pandemic has occurred and all states have indicated work from home, you know, I won't go as far as to say something like shelter in place, but we had that at times. Um, now we, we see that the work can be performed at home and there's going to be measurables that we're going to need to compare. Are we as productive working from home as we are in the workplace? And the employer is going to have to establish a good reason why they can't make those accommodations for some of their employees. So we will see a lot of litigation in the employment context. 
And then you have third-party claims. You know, if that's where, say you run a business, uh, let's use a pizza shop by way of example, and then a customer comes in and they're claiming that they contracted COVID because you didn't necessarily do the appropriate um, COVID processes for cleaning, et cetera, within your workplace. That's a completely different issue. There is CDC guidance with respect to what um, workplaces need to do, what places of business need to do in order to keep their customers and their employees safe. And that guidance needs to be followed and employers need to make sure that they can document that they followed it. So a little, you know, a lot there to your question. I've only touched on some of it because there's such a great many issues that affect the question of how COVID is going to impact the the legal field as we progress through this and hopefully come out of it on the other side. Wow, what, what, a, what an amazing time and amazing world we're living in and so much is changing on in a, I, every day in all aspects. And part of me, because earlier I mentioned you were in Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, I forgot to mention Connecticut. So uh, uh, Rebar Kelly is also in Connecticut. Let's, let's, let's un unpack a few things here, Kathleen, because it's really important. And I know you've only sliced out a certain amount of time for me today. And I'm very, very happy and fortunate that you did. And thank you very much for that. You know, you've been able to build a wonderful firm. Uh, you've got incredible people working for you. You're in four different states. You've got this specialization. Uh, you were recently named one of the top uh, 10 best women entrepreneurs to watch. And, and I know that's very exciting. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's amazing. So we have entrepreneurs that watch the show. And while they may not be in the law field, maybe they're, you know, in the restaurant field, or maybe they're in um, healthcare, or maybe they're a startup company with a new technology. And, and maybe you could share some insight about what it really takes to become an entrepreneur like this, you know, from starting a firm to building it, to managing it and also practicing in it. Maybe you could give some words of wisdom to our younger entrepreneurs watching the show to sort of say to them, hey, you can get it done. You know, you may hit some potholes along the way, but keep forcing it, keep pushing it and good things are going to happen. That's such a great question. And this is of all the things that you um, have asked me today, and I'm very passionate about what I do, I, you know, this, this area has become such an important issue to me because it seems that once you reach a certain level, people want to do what you do. You know, they want to be who you are now, but they don't want to do what you did. They don't understand the amount of sacrifice that went into getting where you are. They want the result, but they don't want the journey, so to speak. And, um, you know, this has been a, a question that's existed throughout the ages, I feel. You know, you see a parent succeed and then the child has more advantages and they don't quite le reach that same level of success. And you question why you do sort of a psychological review of the situation because they didn't have the struggle. You know, how much of that struggle impacts the end result? I think it impacts the end result a lot. And there's no shortcut to success. There's no shortcut to winning. You know, do people in life get lucky? Sure. Uh, I don't think I'm one of those people. I am the person that had to take the hard route. You know, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of dedication. I missed a lot of things, you know, with my family, because if you want to be successful, especially as a professional and as a lawyer, there you have to put your clients first. I mean, that's a, an oath we take. Um, not to say that you have to put them, you know, before every aspect of your life, but when a client comes to you and they have a need that's emergent, 
and they need a lawyer to step in, you can't say, okay, put this on hold. I have dinner plans. You know, the dinner plans get put on hold. You know, I've spent a lot of nights worrying about, you know, where the next case was coming from, about the results that I was achieving, because so much of this is out of our control. Will this judge decide in my favor, regardless of whether or not the law supports that he should or she should find in my favor? Will they find in my favor? Because the entire result hinges on this motion or this particular outcome. And in what we do, we have a saying, you're only as good as your last result, your last victory. I hope that's not the case. So you try to accumulate a lot of victories. So your bucket's full of results that you can point to, but you don't get there an easy through an easy path. You get there because you work harder than your competition. I'm a college athlete. I captained my college softball team. Um, you, we had lots of success there, but I learned as a young athlete that your results come from you working harder than your opponent. And two people have the same skill set. The one who works harder is going to win in the end. And I have employed that rationale throughout my entire life, good, bad, or otherwise. That is how I go about it. I've tried to refine my approach by working smarter so that my hard work is more uh, focused and directed. But I, I work as hard. I just try to get more out of what my work produces. And I tell that to all the young people who work here. And I think at this moment in time, you know, that we've been around. I founded the firm about eight years ago. And we've had some different iterations and we've gone through some people. And now I think we have in place what I consider to be a rock star team. Why do we have a rock star team? Because they appreciate and respect what it took to get here. And they respect me for that. And so when we're interviewing people, myself and my partner, Chris Kelly, we say, if you're not committed to excellence, this is not the place for you. And what that means just Take it slow. What does that mean? Committed to excellence. It means good is the enemy of great. It means that okay isn't good enough. It means excellent is excellence is what we strive for, and that is what we expect. It doesn't mean you can't make a mistake because everybody makes mistakes. No one is perfect. But when you strive for excellence, you're putting everything you have into achieving that result, and no one can ever fault you for that. You have to leave it all on the field. You have to leave it all in that case. You have to know that you've done everything you can on behalf of that client, because that is what we signed up for. And everybody who works here believes in that motto, follows it and implements it. I'd be remiss to not say that one of the things, and I haven't been able to quite fit it into the discussion that I just had, but I believe strongly in this is procrastination has no home here. If you know you have to do something, putting that something off, drains energy, drains time, and drains resources. So we don't accept procrastination. If there's an email that needs a response, respond. By not responding, you force the rest of the team to do the circling back. Circling back is just a, a waste of everybody's time, effort, and energy. When you check it off your list, you move forward to the next thing. It demonstrates that you're proactive. It demonstrates that you're on top of things. And it means that you're not going to waste your time having to return to your thought process to do that thing that you know you need to do later. Do it now. And so no procrastination, commitment to excellence. And I think if you understand that there's no shortcut to winning and you're willing to put the effort in to get there, you could succeed at anything you put your mind to. It's just a matter of whether or not you're willing to have that level of dedication to see it through, to see those results. A lot of people have great ideas. A lot of people have great intentions. A lot of people have super talents, talents beyond what I would ever have, but they could never achieve the results because they're not willing to look at the, the requirements to get there. 
They want to end around it. They want to still enjoy the summer. They want, you know, they want other things. I want those things too, but they, there has to be a price to pay for success. And we can't e erode that price and still expect to receive the same results. So I go back to where I started. A lot of people want to do what I do, you know, be where I am, but they don't want to do what I did. And until you understand that you have to do the did, you, you're never going to get there. And one thing we didn't talk about, and I don't mean to take this off track, you know, at all. I'm also a judge. I'm a magisterial district judge in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. I've been in that position for 12 years. And one of the things that I feel has been most impactful to me in the community that I represent, because this is a community court, and I feel very strongly about the fact that I, I work for the community, is a lot of people that come before you, they're in their worst moments, right? These are never good times for these folks. They're either a witness in a case and their time is being wasted, or they've done something bad or, or stupid that just ended them up in court. A lot of people want to break. You know, you can respect that and appreciate that. You know, if you or, or I made a mistake and somebody was in a position that they could afford you an opportunity to undo that and, um, you know, move forward with your life without having this type of stigma or this type of black mark, you would hope that person would want to give that to you. And I'm all about that. I do want to give breaks. But I, I have something else I employ in that context. And it's if you want a break, you have to earn it. And that doesn't mean you have to, you know, pledge your soul to, uh, you know, to something that not at all. It, it means that you have to appreciate it and you can't appreciate something that's just handed to you, which goes back to success is earned. Right. So breaks are also earned. You know, if it's a speeding ticket or, or something, that's not everyone. You know, everyone has been late for a meeting. Everyone has, you know, you, you evaluate, is this person a generally responsible person that just went a little too fast on this day and the inconvenience of being in court has um, sent a message and they're not going to want to be in this situation again. And the reality of having points on their license is so great to them that they don't want their insurance to go up. And so we're not going to see this person again. Um, lesson learned, lesson received. We don't need to convict here of a speeding ticket that person's made their amends. Is this a young driver that maybe needs to go to driving school or have two years of clean driving history before we rule on this ticket? You know, my point to you is we, I look for solutions there too, to people's problems, but those solutions have to be generated around the concept of accountability and earning, earning that break so that it's appreciated, so that we all go on and, and we respect that which we have. You know, a driver's license is a privilege in, this, in the state of Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and probably every state, it's a privilege and it can be taken away. And sometimes we overlook those types of things and we don't appreciate the privilege. So I try to restore that appreciation in a way that means that people are gonna go on and not reoffend or recommit, we won't see them again. And I think that that same method sort of applies to what we do here in our law firm in so far as how we teach our young associates, you know, they have to be taught. They can't just be handed a, a draft motion. They have to learn to put those pieces together because that, in, you know, inspires their creativity and their strategic thinking. You know, we really do try to employ the same model that I do in court here to our clients, our cases, and our training program for, you know, our younger attorneys. And while you didn't ask this question directly, I feel like I do need to address it in the current environment of our world you know, diversity and equity and inclusion has got to be a part of all of that. Um, we, we really can't move forward unless we have a team of people who come from different places and who look differently because those 
um, those types of experiences help mold our final product and help make us all better people. And so we did hire um, a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion this year to help us identify areas in which we could be better and also help the legal community, you know, to put in place initiatives that extend beyond the work we're doing, but into the community in order to inspire others who, um, who are in some of those protected classes, minorities, women, et cetera, and to come forward and pursue legal careers and education. I have a young woman here who I'm going to be sending to paralegal school so that we can embrace her and, and bring her into the, into the fold by becoming a, a, a billing professional paralegal. That's an opportunity she, she would not have had otherwise. And we do look for individuals not only committed to that standard of excellence, but who do have diverse backgrounds so that they can help us um, evolve, grow, provide better results, be more strategic, help our clients more, and that hopefully we can also help them by providing opportunities and giving them the voice that maybe they haven't had up until this point. And so we definitely have an environment here where we demand that all of our individuals have the same respect. And that's never been a problem. We never had to say that out loud, but it is there. And that um, we command it, that each person here commands their individual respect through their results. And so we try to work together to make everybody better because in the end, we feel like, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And we need our weakest link to be as strong as the top link so that we're providing the best results across the board. And I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I, I love it, Kathleen. Wow. So, so, you know, it's very interesting. I'm listening to you, to you talk and you mentioned you played, you know, college, uh, college athletics and for the people watching the show, if you rewind it five, 10 minutes, you're going to hear Kathleen really lay out what it takes to be successful. And, and I'm thinking it sort of comes from maybe a sports mentality a little bit because you almost sounded a little bit like a coach. So I'm thinking that if you weren't, you know, this amazing, uh, you know, attorney, maybe you would have been an amazing coach because it's those same things in the competitive competitiveness of athletics that, that happened in business. So that was really enlightening. And that was super interesting, Kathleen. I have one more question for you. And I know that we're running a little bit late. And again, thank you so much for slicing out this time for me. And it's something that our people watching the show can learn from as well. When you hire someone, what's the one thing that you're really, really looking for above and beyond everything else? Is there one thing that, you know, when you get done with the interview, you say to yourself, you know, that person has it and that person's coming on the, the Rebar Kelly Law Firm team? That's a great question. So I said that commitment to excellence, that's really where we have focused in on our interviews. And that commitment, it can't, we cannot have an elitist viewpoint of that commitment, meaning that commitment to excellence can't be that you expect to come here and only take the highest level tasks of the work and, you know, push down stuff you don't want to do to other people, you have to be willing to do whatever it takes in order to get that job done, because sometimes that is what it takes. Now, that has to be balanced against a, a business model where attorneys bill, and that's how our revenue is generated, and there are uh, support staff. So you have to designate appropriate tasks to the support staff so that you could become more productive, but you also have to be willing to do your, all parts of our job. You know, there's nothing too glamorous for me, and I think if you interviewed the people here, they would say that that's something that I do. 
that they, I never ask them to do something I'm not willing to do. There's no one here that has to do something that I haven't done, that I'm not willing to do, and that I think is beneath me doing it. And I'm the first name person on the sign. And everybody has to have that philosophy because if they don't, what happens is um, th there's a little bit of resentment among our staff. And I don't want that. We're a team. We're a very cohesive team. We work together. I have said more than one time that my administrative assistant, who's been with me for ages, over a decade, that I can't, I could not survive and do this job without her. Her job is harder than my job a lot of times. She has different skill sets, different organizational skills, and she's not beneath me in any way, shape, or form, because if she's not here, then we have a really big problem. And so people must treat, you know, the, the, the young woman who, who greets us at the front door with the same level of respect as they do Chris or myself or one of the partners in the other offices. In that way, we are equal. And that is very important for us to like hash out during that interview process, because if you get somebody in here who sets off that balance, I don't always hear it right away. And then we have this like low level grumbling of, of unhappiness that I then will need to deal with on the back end. And so we have refined our hiring processes to sort of identify that on the upfront. And we've done a great job of it because at this moment in time, I can honestly say that every single one of our 13 attorneys is fantastic. And every single one of our 10 support staff people are amazing. And that we all work together fairly seamlessly, which helped us weather this pandemic. When when this happened, and it was March 16th, the last day that we were in the office, 2020, it was seamless, seamless transition. Everyone stepped in to do what they needed to do, make sure that everything could get, could get done and that the client's needs were being handled. And they did that because of that sort of um, thread that binds us, that respect is shared here among everyone, that we all commit to the standard of excellence, and that we are all at the same level of what we can cannot do. You know, we're all doing everything that needs to happen here. Wow, Kathleen, that is absolutely amazing. I'm so excited you came on the show today to share with us what you're doing at Rebar Kelly. Uh, it's very interesting. And as well, I think people watching the show are, are, are might be saying to themselves, wow, I think I just received like a Harvard MBA uh, <laughs> equivalent by watching and, and listening to Kathleen, what she has to say about entrepreneurship, because you really you know, encompass so much of what goes into being an entrepreneur. You're saying that when you're in business, you need to be in business. You can't be standing outside, you know, the rink. Uh, you've got to be in there in business, doing it, working with the people that work for you. Um, having them part of the team and not separating them in, in body, mind, and spirit. So it's really interesting the way you've approached this. I can see why um, you've become, you know, the success that you've become. And I love that you have mentioned that people want to become as successful as you, but they don't want to put the work in. And, and, and we find that a lot in this day and age. And, and the unique thing about that is because so few people want to put the work in, for those people, it's almost easier to become successful because not everybody wants to put the work in, right? I tell my son that. I mean, that's, you know, my son's a sophomore. He goes to St. Joe's Prep in Philadelphia. It's an, it's an incredible school and they teach brotherhood and, and serving others. It has a lot of things that match with my philosophy. But the one thing I've told my son, who's it's an extremely intelligent young man, is hard work will separate you. No matter how smart you are, it's your work ethic. If you have a good work ethic, 
and you are committed to working hard, you can succeed at anything. And I really believe that. And I think hard work overcomes most obstacles that people face. It might take you a little bit longer to get there if you don't have the same opportunities. And I'm not disparaging people who grow up in very depressed social economic environments to try to help those individuals wherever we can. We give back a lot here at Rebar Kelly. That's one of our main traits. If you go to our website, you can see all of the community service in which we're engaged. We require our people to provide and perform community service on a regular basis. We feel very strongly about that. So we, we are doing our part. Um, and I'm not disparaging those individuals who haven't had the same opportunities to say my son may have because of the work I've put in. But hard work, if, if you have that dedication to working hard and doing the best that you can and leaving your situation with more than you took, you will succeed. And success is different levels, right? I mean, are you going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company? I don't know. That may be circumstantial, but you could you could be an, you could start your own business. You could be at the top of many other businesses. Maybe your lifestyle doesn't warrant that. Maybe you still want some family and work life balance. You, you get to make choices, and that's important because hard work gives you options. You're sought after. Finding people who have a really good work ethic at this moment is a little difficult, and I think a lot of employers will say that. And I will take somebody who demonstrates to me that they're willing to work hard over a built-in skill set every day of the week, because I can train that person, but I can't teach. And I'll go back to sports. You can't teach speed, right? That's something you're given, but you really can't teach a work ethic. It's something that's inherent to you. Kathleen, this has been absolutely awesome. You're a rock star. Uh, you're, you're really on it. You, you could be an internationally great sports coach <laughs> as well. Maybe you can add that to the list of things in, that you do on your resume, because uh, this has been very motivating and very educational. And Congratulations, everything that you've done at Rebar Kelly Law Firm. It's amazing. And it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for having me. And anytime you want me back, I'm glad to participate. 